I'm always kind of amazed when it works. Is it eight o'clock there already? Yeah. What time is it there? Oh shit! Twelve thirty. I had. I was an hour out. I got that wrong. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Pre-Accident Podcast. I am your host for today. Oh, that's right, I am. I'm your host. Todd Conklin's my name, but my friends call me Fred. No, Todd. Uh, they call me Todd. So uh, welcome back to the podcast. If you're a first-time listener, ooh, you picked a good one to jump in on. <laughs> if you're a long-time listener, you know, you know the drill. They're all exciting and fun. Everything is exciting and fun. So I'm just getting back from a big trip to Indonesia. I had the best time with a gang of workers who are just, just remarkable and on the very verge of just bumping up against kind of all this new view safety stuff in a very interesting dynamic culture that is really the culture of Indonesia. It was fun. Um, I, a great time, actually. Um can't say enough about how much fun I had, but I missed you. But now we're back together. And then I was in Vancouver for a day with a whole bunch of construction safety people, a bunch of them, like a giant Italian community senator full, not senator, oh, sorry, that would be a Freudian slip, center of uh, construction safety people. So it's been a pretty um, eventful week for me as far as uh, traveling lots of places. Golly, Vancouver was gorgeous. Oh, I'd hated to leave and I was only there for like a minute. No, less than a minute, it felt like, and then I zoomed on. Today's podcast is great. Um, it's on the heel of, of uh, last week's podcast with Ivan, which I, I thought that was – the whole notion of spaghetti string modeling has just encroached my thinking completely. It's a whole new way to look at blue line, black line. It's a really brilliant way to look at uh, safety envelope and cone of uncertainty and all those cool words, so that's fun as well. Today, we're going to be with uh, Andrew Barrett. And Andrew Barrett has a uh, he, he's a he's an Australian who works with safety. Uh, he's a remarkable guy. He has a whole entire program uh, of which part of that is a podcast called Safety on Tap. Andrew really is focusing on sort of professional growth, um, maybe professional growth, the wrong growth opportunities, both professionally, but also I think personally and intellectually. And professionally and and every other Lee way you can think of, growth for safety and health people really around the world. And he's building a community of thought and practice about sort of the arc of our profession. Where do we go? What do we do? What are we thinking about and how are we growing? And anything that builds community, I'm supportive of. So we got it all involved in doing this podcast because I asked Andrew. I thought it would be fun to have him on the podcast. And he had um, uh, absolutely agreed to be on the podcast. And so we sat down to record it, and little did I know that he was actually going to record me for a podcast, and I was totally going to record him for a podcast. So would you have a kind of dueling podcasts? Um, but I think you'll find it interesting. It's certainly worthwhile. It's, it's, it's a good listen. I know I've got you. <laughs> That's right. Now I'm just sitting here hanging out. Ugh. Very good, very good. So Sunday night, Sunday night it is, man. It's the thank you for coming out. It's either time the in your best, week. the best night or the worst night of the week. I can't decide. It's kind of, mostly kind of depressing. <laughs> you know what? I, I appreciate your uh, your reflections on sort of where where your head's at. You know, in the in the podcast, sort of going. You know, this has been good or this has been tough, and you know, you know that sort of thing. I appreciate that. 
it's a <clears throat> it's a constant struggle. You know, you do one of these. It's a, you have to kind of. It's like I don't know. It's like a commitment. It's like you're married. How how do you find that commitment? How do I find it? Mm. Um, do you ever hate your podcast? Sorry. Do you ever hate your podcast? No. Uh-uh. No. I, I. It's not too. It's not too bad. I, I worked in radio all through university, so the uh, actual podcast part of it, the production part, is not very difficult because I did a ton of that in a past life. And uh, the only problem I have, and it's probably the same problem you have, is scheduling is kind of icky because yeah. that's just a mess. And, um, you, you know, it's, it's, I don't really, it's not hard to find people to put on, which I thought would be, but it isn't very hard. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, w- what's going on now is a lot of people want to be on that I don't think are that interesting. <laughs> so... And that I think that's a function of when you get big numbers. Yeah, it's more pull than push at the yeah. beginning compared to the beginning. Yeah, and so you get all these people that want to come and talk about their safety book or talk about their whatever they're doing or you know all that kind of stuff. And so you have to kind of weed through that. Um, so what's your criteria for saying yes to people if they're interesting and if they're persistent? <laughs> so you know, I I, I used to. Actually, I don't know if I have ever even had any criteria really to speak of, but but I want you people must. that you, you I want make people... decisions all the time, even if they're implicit sort of criteria. Well, yeah, that's true. They're definitely criteria. Um, I want people that um, have something to say, but I don't really care what viewpoint they present. It can be old safety, new safety. I mean that that's I find that all kind of interesting. So that that doesn't bother me. The more interesting people are the computing people. Right. Have you have you interviewed any of them? Yeah, we've sort of. So the the mission for our podcast is it's about um, personal uh, and professional growth of leaders in health and safety. So right. it's actually it's not, a it's good not fit so for, much. What's that? That's not the computing guys are not a good fit for that probably. Well, well, it is in the sense that so the the, the, the way that I say yes to ideas or topics or guest suggestions is um, is this something that will help. Um, stretch a health and safety professional to help them be more effective. And so um, the way that that manifests itself is, so for example, we've had um, a guest on to talk about big data and analytics and that sort of stuff, because that's an area where many of my listeners, um, you know, they they don't, they haven't ever spent a lot of time in that. They generally don't understand it very well. um, And they're at risk of being left behind by their organizations who are forging ahead into big data and things like that. So that effectively meant that the answer to that topic and that guest was yes for me because that helps my listeners to grow themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally, totally. And plus that's super interesting. All that free agent stuff and agency stuff and data analytics stuff and that predictive, yeah, that's all, that's super, super interesting. That's very cool. Absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, we also, we've had guests on before sort of talking about the future of work and then within the context of the future of work, inevitably technology is a big part of that. Um, so, you know, communication in the sense of, um, you know, the gig economy and, and this, um, what do they call it? Um, there was a word that they used, which was called the disintermediation of work, which was yeah. a word I had to look up. Um, so, you know, an internet of things and virtual reality and augmented reality, whatever. And I suppose I'm really cautious in my mission to, with my listeners is to not be the audio version of a trade show. So this is not about going, hey, here is the next best shiniest object 
it's actually really thinking about the context for that, the purpose of that, how that fits in to what you're trying to achieve, how that helps you, you know, sort of grow as an effective professional. So I actually really push back on a lot of the nuts and bolts stuff because there's more than enough information out there for people who want to learn about it. It's really about going, how does this fit into you being more effective? What are your listeners? What do your listeners think about the fact that that I'm pretty convinced that the next health and safety professionals, uh, at least the next leading health and safety thinkers, are not in health and safety. Oh, yes. Uh, I love it. Um, and I should say, I'm recording this. So are you okay if we just keep flowing? Yeah, no, I, yeah, that's how I do it, is I always record from the first minute. So Good, good, good. Okay, Todd Conklin, welcome to the Safety on Tap podcast. We'll do that. <laughs> yeah, you can put that in later. You can, t- you can toss yeah, that yeah, in that's later. Yeah, that's right. Or maybe we'll just leave it here. Um, uh, so your question was... Um, what is what does the future look like? Yes, I, I agree that um, from my personal perspective, I learn more about how to b- get more effective health and safety outcomes by not learning about traditional health and safety stuff. So, what's uh, what's your background? What brought you to health and safety? Oh, reverse interview. <laughs> um, I uh, fell into it at university. It just sounded like a good idea. I had no idea what course I was going to do. And my dad, who worked in government at the time, said, um, you know, you're always going to be in a job if you work in health and safety. Um, It was a very um, unassuming sort of beginning. Um, And then I did lots of the traditional health and safety stuff, the systems, the control, the safety one. Um, And then I sort of got to the point um, a couple of years ago where I realized I needed a longer rope to explore these you know, um, rumblings that I had inside of me of about different ways to do things. And, um, and so then I branched out on my own and, and part of my mission, uh, which includes this podcast and the learning community called Safety on Tap Connected, which goes behind it, um, is actually um, trying to – so two things I say yes to in the business context is can I serve an underserved group and can I help to um, look at an ineffective status quo in a different way? So for this context for the podcast and professional development of health and safety people, I'm, I'm trying to future-proof health and safety outcomes by helping people develop. Um, and, and I think that there's just this um, annoying obsession with consumption of information. So the more I consume, the more I'm thinking I'm developing courses, conferences, podcasts, articles, all that sort of stuff. And it just causes overwhelm. So we're missing out on most of the learning opportunity, which is around social learning and experiential learning. So we took that sort of theory and we try and embody that in the podcast around action taking and reflection. Um, and then we've got a community where we, you know, people get coaching and all this other stuff. So what, anyway, what, so that's how I ended up. In- what led you to the new view stuff? And you know, it's not called a reverse in- interview. It's called a conversation. <laughs> you Australian guys, everything is upside down to you. Everything. Everything. And the toilet flushed the other way around, according to The Simpsons. Yes. Um, I don't know if that's true. I always try to check on that, but I can't really ever tell. Yes, absolutely. You know, I um, I actually um, I came to some of my ways of thinking about doing things differently, little d, not big d, like safety differently, um, actually by looking at things like um, – uh, corporate democracy, holacracy sort of stuff. So Ricardo Semler is a guy from yeah. Brazil. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's actually – so I took a big step back from health and safety because I had those blinkers on and I went, actually, I'm, th- this is not where the solution to the, most of the problems are going to lie. So I took the blinkers off and then I said, well, we've actually got to have a look at how we do different ways of work, how we, how we structure work differently, how 
um, you know, we, we go back to basics for that. I, I, I often, when I'm speaking in, in podcasts and stuff, I'll talk about the whole um, industrial Henry Ford production line kind of mindset that still exists in the way we design businesses today. So I think that health and safety people often bump up against constraints in terms of influencing change, um, largely because of the design of work and remuneration systems and all these other things that we conveniently say, you know, oh, that's outside of my remit, that's a HR thing, or that's an OD thing, or how do you categorise this? When we talk about health and safety outcomes that we're trying to influence, how do you categorise yourself? Like, do you do you call yourself a safety professional? Do you, other people call you a safety professional? What's your relationship to it? I don't, yeah, I don't know. Other people call me lots of stuff. Um, so, you know, I, I, I never, I never came into this through safety. So I was, a, you know, I'm an org psych guy and, uh, my PhD's in org behavior. And I was a big fan of, uh, well, my, my advisor was Ed Rogers who wrote the book, Diffusion of Innovation, which is a really important book, um, yep. around sort of how the world's changing and his, his people that he worshiped were. Thomas Kuhn and Kurt Lewin and those guys. So I really came at, I came at um, safety from a much different angle. My boss came and asked me, uh, gosh, probably 20 years ago, uh, there was a requirement for us to ex- actually expand into something they were calling at the time human performance, which was, was really, really the early NuView stuff. And, uh, and they said, we think this is a really good fit for you. Why don't you do it? So I, I don't really, my background's way more on the psychology, soft sciences. Yep. And so I, I don't really think, I mean, I don't really, I mean, I guess I, I'm totally a safety person and that's what I did for uh, more than half of my career. Um, but, but I don't, I don't really think of myself as like a, like I always think industrial hygienists, they're kind of the brains of the outfit. They're the smartest people. Then there's all the the, the, <laughs> the, the safety professionals, the CSPs and whatever they're called around, all around the world. They're kind of the, you know, they're the grunts in the field. They're the workers, the foot soldiers. I guess I was more kind of, I, I knew behavioral-based safety was just fundamentally wrong. Just, just mm-hmm. It was just wrong. And I was really interested at the time in, in, um, how systems sort of create success, but I was more interested in kind of organizational systems, family system stuff. So that, that's how I came into it. When did, Wrong. when did you fall out of love with Taylorism with the the classic sort of the Henry Ford, the, the science of work stuff? I think I realized not consciously, but I think, um, I, I subconsciously, I realized that I didn't, um, I didn't love that design of work because I hated being constrained. I hated being told what to do. I hated inflexible systems. Um, I hated being treated like um, an asset in a um, in a machine. So my first job was um, as a consultant, as a graduate, which is probably one of the dumbest things I've ever done on reflection. I don't know how a graduate person can really effectively be a consultant, but um, I learned lots. The learning curve was very steep. But again, it's like you, you're driven by the numbers and the you know and your billing hours and all that sort of stuff and it just is really um, unhuman. So I, from the very beginning of my career, I uh, I realised that I didn't like that way of work. And then it was only later on that I was then sort of realised this is the legacy of an industrial era that I it sort of started to make sense to me. Which is very I mean that's a really interesting observation to come to kind of on your own because I think. It's kind of a um, everybody's kind of swimming in the same pond, 
And this belief that if we just did a better job planning and if planners planned and workers worked and the separation was always clear, planners are smarter than workers, so they'll do smarter planning. And workers are stronger than planners, so they'll do harder work. That the mm. world would be a perfect place, but I mean, it, it, you know, clearly the evidence is uh, directly against that. And it's just interesting to hear somebody um, talk about. It. Now, don't take this as a morbid question, but um, what uh, what what do you want people to say about you at your eulogy? I think that I made a difference. That's that's all I ever really that's want. Me. Come on, give us some detail. It's not fluffy. Oh no, I, I don't even mean that fluffily. Fluffily, I would I would want them to say, you know, how wonderful of a human being I was, um, which, uh, you know, is certainly open to interpretation, depending on what your standard for wonderful human being is. No, just making a difference. People ask me all the time about this, like, um, you know, what? Why do you do this? Why? Why are you? Why do you travel so much? I travel a lot, right? Because um, the work's meaningful. It's not stealing, right? Yeah. It's it's got to be the most interesting work I've ever done, and it's pretty honest. And, uh, and you're not, you know, you're not robbing banks. So I don't feel any kind of moral or ethical fears to me, to me, what, what I want to do is, is really get it to the point where we don't look at safety as an outcome because that's really not served us well. But in fact, we look at safety as a, as a capacity and that we focus really on, on the fact that, uh, that really what we manage are ways to land softly graceful extensibility, kind of the resilience engineering stuff. And yeah. that systems that are designed to fail and do fail, fail much better than systems that we hope will be perfect. So kind yeah. of that's, it, you know, uh, when I die, I would like them to, I'd like everyone to get really drunk. That would be really nice <laughs> on, on pretty good, you know, pretty good alcohol too. Cause I won't care. I won't be there. Um, I would like everyone to get a hundred dollars and and spend it doing something great. That would be a nice thing to do. And then ultimately, that I made a difference. I mean, it's it's not very romantic, but um, and it is a bit woolly, as you would say. But I think that's probably what I'd want to have said. So, have you got? Um, so, tell me some stories about the work that you've done, speaking, consulting, teaching, that sort of stuff, um, where you've already got some feedback that really gives you a boost. That sort of says, you know what, I'm on the right path, and and I'm sort of doing something good here. Because inevitably, the, the sort of work that we all do uh, in terms of our overall effectiveness as you know uh, making a difference, it's it's pretty hard to sort of evaluate how we're going. So, what are the signs for you right now for that? Well, so I think you look you, – so I, I always listen for a big shift in the way they communicate. So mm-hmm. I, I spend a lot of time with uh, senior, senior leaders, boards of directors, and leaders of big companies. And um, it's always interesting. When I go in and first talk to them, I listen very carefully for victim language. You know, when yes. they say they have a problem, the workers, what else can I do for them? Uh, you know, they need to be better. They need to be more careful. Uh, that's always kind of a big – piece of data for me because then I know, you know, that part of the problem is they think at the management level, at the C-suite level, they're doing everything perfectly. The problem is, is that the worker should be more careful. I yeah. know a change has happened when I hear their language, when I hear them really not using victim language, but using words like we, um, and them having ownership and accountability really throughout the organization for success. It, it, 
this is a hard profession. I, most professions are hard. I mean, this is probably any profession could have this conversation. You've got to take some intrinsic value out of this. You've got to feel good about the work yeah. you do, or you wouldn't do it every day. It'd be hard to do yeah, it every yeah. day. But you also have to look for you have to look for little rays of sunshine, little little hopeful things, and there's lots of them. I mean, and one of the things you can just see is is how how organizations just get better. And the thing I think we do as safety professionals is we're really we're really sort of in battle for the dignity of the worker. And one of the things we can do, and this is a really valuable thing that makes you feel warm at the end of the day, is make sure the worker has a voice. And that's what we do is sort of give voice to the worker when unexpected outcomes, events, accidents, near misses, close calls, good catches, um, significant events, fatalities, when those things happen, we actually bring a voice to the worker. Because for too long, I think I think people saw accidents as, as moral failings, that that a better worker would not have put his head there. A better worker yep. would not have driven so fast. A better worker would have not pushed the wrong button. Th- those are moral failings. That's where, where the, the, the society, whether that's the leaders of the organization or the culture or the country, gets to stand in moral judgment of the bad worker, which in kind of a Nietzschean way sort of takes care of existentialism. But I think in a, in a moral way, it's pr- pretty decrepit. And where I really see our work having a big payoff is not in safety, but in things like poverty. Because I think Wrong. the very same things we say about people who have accidents, we can translate to, to people who are poor. If you listen to the language of poverty, it, people there's a belief that people are poor because they choose to be. Because they, if they yep. tried harder or cared more, or, or you know, did more, slept less, then they wouldn't be poor. And I think one of the things we do is bring a dignity away from that sort of fundamental attribution error and, and, and really help change that conversation. Wow. Do, do you think that um, if, if, that's, if that's your view on the, the mindset or the motivation of uh, of a safety professional do you think sometimes we become a bit hypocritical and and maybe this is we create some cognitive dissonance that we don't really want to address in the sense that so much of the work that we call health and safety um is really systematized and one size fits all you know tar everyone with the same brush um you know investigations that must find root causes that are often um you know around human error um around the uh, the move to focus on control measures that are, you know, administrative and things like that because they're easier than the hard work of hard controls and redesign and things like that. Do, do you think that there's this contrast or conflict in health and safety professionals where ideally, you know, we, we, we'd love to, you know, think uh, that we're, we're doing great work and we care for people, but that the way we go about doing our work is actually, you know, quite, um, uh, quite opposite to that? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I don't think it's hypocritical. When, when I see good people having to use, you know, a root cause system and pull down menus and pick a cause, <laughs> I, I don't think they're they're hypocrites. I don't think they're bad people. I think they're good people in a really shit system. Yeah. And so one of the things that I really push for is is, you know, is that we look beyond if we use these tools to understand safety we have to use these tools to understand any system 
right? And so we have to look at because all, all we're talking about is these are just these are these are system tools. That's why yep. you know that's why our roots come from places like Sidney Decker and David Woods and and you know um, James Reason and those guys. But they also come from guys like Kurt Lewin and Edgar Schein and Ev Ooh. Rogers and 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 Conovan. I mean, there's a ton of people that we could list there, right? And and so I don't think of it as hypocritical. I think of it as a, as a system that is maturing and growing and that we did the best job we could with what we thought was what we needed to fix. But when we realized what we needed to fix was not the right thing, then our systems really haven't caught up with our thinking. And yeah. that's going to be hard because our systems are really framed around kind of the old school idea. If you want an interesting read, just, you know, I spent my whole career working with scientists, look up, just study in some depth the complexity of a system that doesn't have a null set. With the absence of a null set, it's it's really, really hard to measure stuff that doesn't happen. And uh-huh. yet our entire profession, if we do our jobs correctly, nothing happens. Yep. So we're focused on the wrong things then. If uh, <laughs> well, I think I think if, wrong. I think wrong's kind of judgmental. I mean, I think okay. I think our systems have historically led us to measure the things that were easy to measure, and then we sort of wrapped some pseudo intellectual psychology around justifying measuring the wrong things. I mean, it's it's the it's the Heinrich model, right? I spend half my life debunking the Heinrich model. Well, there's not a lot of debunking to the Heinrich model. It's not based upon empirical research. There was no yeah. sample set. I mean, you know, Heinrich put this together. He made it a pyramid, and he said, huh, it looks to me like you can predict major events by counting smaller events. The problem is, is that's just not true. But it's very seductive because it's very predictable. Everything – so human beings – as a rule, this is kind of painting with a wide brush. Human beings are much more comfortable with blame than they are with chaos. And so we're going to find somebody to blame because it's really, really, really uncomfortable to say, wow, that fatality was a complete outlier. There was no way we could predict it. And because we couldn't predict it, we couldn't prevent it. That's not acceptable. So we we have to sort of, we have to take blame on that. So going back to your um, org psych sort of background, um, I, I'm, I'm curious to get your views on on a um, a concept that I talk a, a bit about is around. So going back to so taking a big step back from work again and having a look at society in general, um, I'd sort of got um, a, a lot of thoughts around this idea of the unit of the village, um, and that being a, a core effective social unit of an ideal size. Um, for so many reasons, um, and then you know, n- numerous villages then um, sort of interacting in a in say an economic context, or um, if you look at conflict and things like that. There's there's I think there's a lot of things that boil down to this sort of village. So, where do you think that where does that come from? This idea of blame or preference for blame or, or the comfort of that versus chaos. When um, in in all of human existence, there's been plenty of chaos. And if we were focusing on blame in a village, you know, because you kick someone out when something goes wrong, when they, you know, 
uh, fall asleep and the lion comes and eats other someone else or whatever it is, then wouldn't we just be kicking everyone out of the village? Like, how do, how do you think that that's come to be? Well, I mean, that, that's a really good question. I, that's, that is, in essence, really what you're describing is sort of Nietzsche's notion of existentialism. You know, this, mm. we have these existential crises where we, we look at the world and we say, what does this mean? Right. And, and, and that's what we're doing is we're just doing this sort of advanced sense making this this meaning making. And we're trying to really ascribe some kind of uh, of very predictive, very understandable failure on the bad outcome, because if we can prescribe or ascribe this very predictable, understandable um, failure, this 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 weakness, then all of a sudden the failure makes sense. And and what it really is is just it's it's just a it's just a fight against chaos. I mean, ultimately, the question that you're asking, um, and we probably won't solve it on this podcast, is does man exercise free will, or is man part of a larger predetermined system? And the mm-hmm. struggle between free agency and predeterminism, that's a big one. I mean, <laughs> that's uh, I don't. You know, I I don't know. I think I think we desperately, at least in Western cultures. We desperate, and I use that so reticently, but but that's kind of the language. We, I don't want to use the word "develop." That's crappy. But in Western cultures, we we have really a sort of a strong belief system that says, you know, if you're morally good, then your reward is moral goodness. Yeah. Whereas in some more collectivistic cultures, you know, a, a lot of this blame discussion we have doesn't translate terribly well. Um, to organizations, for instance, I, I just spent a week in Indonesia, and um, and there's not a huge amount of blaming in Indonesia. There just isn't, because it's a highly collectivistic, pretty small group of villages, really, if you think of it that way. Indonesia is kind mm-hmm. of a geopolitical collection of lots and lots and lots of tiny microcultures that yep. existed on those islands between you guys and, and Singapore. Um, right? And And... And so you you start looking at this and thinking, wow, this is this is kind of a bigger struggle than what we have. And you can really get lost in that discussion. It's a great discussion to have, but I think it it's more meaningful when you bring it back to the work we do, which is it's much easier, quicker, and faster to say that this accident happened because of some weakness. So we attribute some causal factor to a bad choice, a bad judgment, a bad decision. And then once we have identified that, it, it does two things. It makes the chaos go away, which is good, and it gives us something easy to fix. So talking about, uh, as you say, the, the, the sometimes some of this reflection or whatever c- can be insightful, and then sometimes um, it's not so helpful. Um, how do you respond to people who just don't have your worldview, who don't see the way things, um, the way that you do? And, and the reason why I ask that is because I suspect that you spend a bit of your time with people who are already self-selecting um, to be part, who, who already have that worldview. So um, how do you how do you respond to people who aren't sort of in our own echo chamber of awesomeness? So so surprise. <laughs> that's a good way to think of that. Uh, so surprisingly, <laughs> I spend an awful lot of time with people who don't um, believe in what we're selling. Um, how does that come about? Well, that's that's who I get sent in to talk to. I mean, that's that's kind of why I go there, is there they'll be like the you know the 
senior leadership team doesn't buy into this. They're very old school. Would you please come and meet with them and help us? So the safety guys are totally revving on this, and they're getting it, and they're liking it. But they can't. the senior guys aren't a part of it. The one thing I try to remember, and this, this, is, uh, this has really served me well, is when people push back, don't get defensive, get instructive. When they push back, what it means is that we need to teach more than argue. And that the reason they're pushing back is because we, whoever the we is, we haven't done the best job sort of tilling the soil to prepare the soil for the seeds we're about to plant. Yep. And, and when you look at it that way, that does two things. One is it gives you a reason to not get upset. And you kind of need that. I mean, that's a good thing. And two is it really does help you understand that data in context. That when they're arguing with you over things like, you know, deterrence, I've got to punish these people because if I don't, I'm not sending a clear message of deterrence, which is a ridiculous argument. I mean, it's it's 2017. <laughs> we got plenty of empirical research that says deterrence isn't a good safety tool. Lots, lots and lots and lots. But what they're really saying is this is where I am. I've now identified where I am. You need to meet me where I am and help me get to where you are. Yeah. And, and, and that's actually, that's actually pretty helpful for me at least. And so um, th that example is a really good one with um, deterrence and the evidence behind that. So where maybe the evidence isn't as clear, um, how do you yourself personally entertain the idea that maybe some of the things that you talk about or believe in or teach might not be right? Um, so I always think that's possible, but th that's kind of the frame of reference that I come into the world in. Remember, it's more fun to be wrong than to be right. Yeah. And so I, so I do lots of investigations and I teach a lot of classes, on, not on how to do investigations, but how to think about doing investigations. Mm -hmm. And I'm always pretty certain that the best investigation I'll do, you know, the one where it's the last hour of the last day and everything is, you know, we're wrapping everything up. I'm always pretty convinced that I'm one guy walking down the hall, sticking his head in the room and saying, hey, have you thought about that from being wrong? Yeah. And so for me, it's not like it, it's not personal. Like I don't take it personal if they tell me I'm wrong. Um, I, I, I'm I'm actually pretty open to it. Um, they just need to be able to prove it. I mean, they need to have a compelling case that's really based on something more than just belief to tell me that I'm wrong. Because I have a pretty compelling case that's based on something more than belief to tell them that the current thinking that I'm representing, which will change absolutely. But the current thinking that I'm representing now, that thinking is the best we have, and it's tested and tried, and we've tried to really, we've tried to really build it on a foundation that's defendable. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a bit, a bit about um, a, a day in the life. You mentioned there teaching, and you've talked about going to Indonesia, talking to senior managers. What does an average week or month or whatever look like for Todd? So it just it's it's really. Um, it's really pretty flexible. Uh, um, it, it's kind of dependent on... So I go into a lot of organizations and help diagnose problems. I'll go into a lot of organizations a lot. I do this a lot that have had a significant event. So they've had a terrible fatality or a terrible 
serious injury or some kind of catastrophic operational failure, I'm kind of the person that they would call when the senior leadership team with the door closed is pretty convinced that they don't know they won't kill another person. Mm-hmm. And so I'll go in and sort of help restore their ability to do high-risk work better than they could do it before they had the event. Um, but the days of teaching class, I don't teach as many classes as I once did, that's for sure. Um, I don't speak at as many meetings as I once did. What I do now is is I'll go into a – these are big, like, Fortune 10, big geopolitical giant companies – and I'll yeah. go and work with their senior, senior leaders. A lot of times I'll work with the board of directors and I'll try to get them to redefine their definition of operational reliability and safety. And then once that starts, then I, my goal is to always help the safety people, which is also sometimes the safety crew is sometimes a pretty hard group to get to turn because mm. they're really invested in kind of the old metrics and the old ways, especially systems. They really like their old systems. But once you sort of get them in a place where they're thinking a little bit differently about these problems, then my job is to support them as much as I can and give them everything I have. And then the way I measure success is that then they don't have to call me back, that they actually take what I shared with them and make it better and go farther and faster than I ever imagined they could go. One of the things I do, just because it seems like the right thing to do and it's super easy, is I just give everything away. So I'm not very freaked out about intellectual property. Um, I just give everything away. Um, it makes it a lot easier, and and then they have everything, and they can do it without me. I think our job, really, Andrew, is to build capacity. It's not to get the next job. It's to actually leave the last job with the capacity to move on beyond us. And Absolutely. I guess the, the lucky payoff on that, karmic karmically lucky payoff is that if you do that, that seems to come back around business wise pretty healthily. I mean, I certainly am busy all the time. That's for sure. And it really speaks to that, that uh, well overused cliche of safety people sort of talking about that their greatest success is making themselves redundant. (laughs) But it's kind of, it's kind of true. I mean, I really, my dream is to never have to go back. My dream is to, is to get a company in a position where they they just move faster and farther than I could ever move them. Because they're the experts. You know, they own the problem, and so they have to own the solution. They, yep. they, they can't hire the solution out. They've got to own the solution. And the solution is best formulated by the people who actually do the work, so they need to own the solution as well. I try to be sort of strategically improvisational. I try to move. <laughs> Tell us more about that. Well, I try to, I, I try to, I try to meet the, the group where they are, and then I try to move the group to a state where really what I've changed is the questions they ask. The most powerful tool I can give them is, are new questions or, or ways to formulate new questions. So um, you say that you don't have some sort of um, fancy branded trademarked uh, five step process that you've all out for people? Uh-uh. My gosh. <laughs> no, because I don't, <clears throat> I don't find any of those work. And they're all basically the same thing. They're all, it's all kind of Francis Bacon. Um, you know, it's, it's all kind of the scientific method, right? We just sort of market it in different ways. And Francis Bacon is the one that sort of invented that a long time ago. Um, now I, I mostly am interested in, in getting, getting leaders aligned to kind of seeing the world a little differently and then letting them go from there. 
So there you have the podcast. What do you think? Oh, man, sorry. I cut. You can't even believe how much crap I cut out of there. So much stuff to cut out, and I'm still like eight minutes long. That's bad. Sorry. But I hope you enjoyed it. I think it was a very interesting listen. Andrew's quite ama- it's quite a. It's impressive. Check it out. I think you'll find it cool. Until then, my friends, this is the podcast for you. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for writing reviews. All that stuff makes a huge difference. Um, and I'm super glad to do it for you, even though it sounded like I, w- I, I didn't want to sound ungrateful. I hope I didn't, but I don't, it's, uh, you just heard a little, a little snapshot into what life's like. That's all there was. That is the podcast for today. There you go, baby. It's done. So, um, I hope you get what you need. Stay strong. That's really important. Until then, um, learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. And for goodness sakes, be safe. (laughs) 